and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and guys, this week, I'm going to be wrapping up this epic, epic, epic mega series that I've been working my way through called These Seven Men Are Disrupting the Comic Book Industry. And the shtick of this mega series, if you've been listening for any length of time at all, the shtick of it should be pretty straightforward. I like the early offerings of Image Comics, and so I decided to do a mega series about the early offerings of Image Comics. But guys, the simple fact of the matter is, I've got a lot more to say about some of these comics. Well, some more than others, but I've got a lot more to say about at least a few of these comics, or at least these titles, these image titles. And so I'm going to go ahead and suggest that I'm coming back to early 90s image. I don't exactly know when, but I do have ambitions to do it for reasons I don't think I necessarily want to get into right here, right now. There have been some new developments in my personal life that could make podcasting not impossible, but maybe a little bit more rare. So anyway, I honestly don't know when I'm going to be coming back to uh, image in general, but I do know that I, that I have plans or not even plans. I have a desire to do so. Basically the brilliant idea I had was that I was going to do a different uh, mega series about Image Comics. This one was going to be called Into the Wild Storm. And anyway, so I don't know when I'm going to get around to doing that, but at some point or another, I'm going to get around to doing that. I hope. So we'll just have to see how things go. But in the here and now, I'm not talking about anything to do with Wildstorm. Rather, I talked last week about Spawn number three, so logically that must mean this week I'm going to be talking about Spawn number four. Cover date is September of 1992. Cover artist is Todd McFarlane. Writer is Todd McFarlane. Penciler is Todd McFarlane. Inker is Todd McFarlane. Colorist is Todd... Colorist is Steve Olive, Ruben Rood, and Ollie Optics. Letterer is Tom Orzachowski. Editors are Terry Fitzgerald and Wanda McFarlane. Cover price is a buck ninety-five. And as a completely meaningless point of trivia, what I paid for this issue on Comixology is a buck ninety-nine. So I wouldn't say that when history has had its final say, the, that this comic has increased all that much in value. I mean, four cents—that's really nothing to write home about. But hey, can't have everything, right? Story is entitled Questions Part 4. Story synopsis is as follows. Spawn and the Violator fight. The end. At least for now. So, what did I think? Guys, I'm not kidding. That pretty much is all that happens in this issue. Now, I said back in my episode about the uh, about Spawn number 3, I said that this issue, or rather this series up to this point, has been one might say a little lacking in terms of action and car chases and gunfights and fist fights and uh, motorcycle chases and shit blowing up and narrow escapes. There really hasn't been really any of that in, in, in these issues. And the thing about it is what people typically associate with early 90s image is all the stuff I just mentioned. You know, a lot of fights and explosions and uh, pouches, lots and lots of pouches, and 
gigantically huge epic mega fights and, and all this stuff and there's really not a whole lot of that stuff in any of these four issues and you can almost see these four issues i mean quite apart from being sort of like their own sort of little mini series that could end with issue number four if sales didn't really justify continuing things you could sort of view these four issues that i've talked about sort of as one big issue and i have no idea your personal willingness to do that but certainly that is one way of looking at it so anyway but in case i'm not being clear spawn number four this is the big payoff you know with all of the action and and fights and stuff that were lacking in the previous three issues well this is the issue that kind of sort of somewhat makes up for that now far and away from being a criticism i especially when i was a kid i actually kind of liked the fact that the first three issues were real talky-talky, very atmospheric, very moody. You know, to me, it wasn't... It really wasn't a bad thing that you didn't have uh, tons of action set pieces and all that fun stuff, that this was a little bit more subdued, and I would say that the emphasis wasn't even on action at this point in, in the first three issues of this series. As much as anything, it was about the atmosphere of everything. It was about the art and just how fucking cool everything looks. You know, to me, that's really what those first three issues are all about, at least from a visual standpoint. From a story standpoint, and yes, I submit to all of you that there is a story. From a story standpoint, what we're really doing is we're learning about, primarily about Al Simmons, his world, as much as we can about his history, so on and so forth. And basically, McFarlane is using these four issues to set up what would be the status quo for this title for really uh, a, a few years to come. You know, this is the, the state of affairs as we see them at the, uh, at the end of Spawn number four. I don't necessarily mean this as a, as a criticism or, for that matter, as a praise but I do think it would be fair to say that the status quo, as we see it at the end of the fourth issue, things have not radically changed between the end of Spawn number four and Spawn number 24. You know, this is a, this is a story that McFarlane really took his time to unpack and unfold. This is a very leisurely pace, or at least that's how it felt at the time when these issues were coming out. Now, honestly... Considering the the decompressed nature of a lot of 2000s-era comics, yeah, the, the pacing of the first 20, maybe 25, maybe 30 issues of Spawn, they're just about on, on par with anything, really, from the 2000s. So, I don't know. It's all in how you look at it. But getting into the issue itself, starting with the cover, I said in the last episode that Really, of these first four issues, my favorite uh, covers were Spawn number one and Spawn number three. And the cover for Spawn number four, it's this pseudo headshot, I guess, of the Violator. And this is, I don't know, this, I mean, look, if you like this cover, that's fine. But to me, there's nothing really all that amazing or, for that matter, bad. It's just, to me, this cover is just kind of here, you know? It's not super great. It's not super awful. It's just 
here, you know? So whatever you want to make of that. Uh, getting into Comixology's page three, though, this is... I, I can't help but think that this is Todd McFarlane being Todd McFarlane a little bit. This is based... This, this or page one in the paper issue, but page three, as per Comixology, this is... Basically, this is a, it, it's a close-up of the Violator's hand. He's got Spawn's heart, and it's still beating. His hand is dripping in blood and all this stuff. And I'm not, I'm not exactly prepared to say that the amount of uh, caption uh, boxes on page three, that this is wall text. I'm not saying that, but it's damned close. <clears throat> there, I, if you look at this page and your first thought is, there are just too damn many caption boxes on this page. I'm really in no position to tell you that you're wrong. This is... Look, I understand that there's a story to tell, but at the end of the day, comics are visual, okay? This is a visual medium. And it's well and good to tell a story that's fun and engaging or that makes you think is... Uh, immersive or just f fucking whatever. But there is such a thing as too much. You know, there is such a thing as too fucking much text on the page. You know, it's really supposed to be about the art. One might say, especially with early 90s image, it's supposed to be about the art. And there's just too fucking many caption boxes on this page. So I'm putting this down to the fact that McFarlane was still finding his sea legs as a writer. And with more seasoning, I think it would be fair to say that he could be, he would eventually get to a point where he could be a lot more economical and communicate a lot of these same ideas with fewer caption boxes, but we're not there yet. So you've got, just to kind of sum it all up, you've got this close up of the violator's hand and it's covered in blood and you can see the heart and the heart's still beating. Bum, 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 bum you know, and all that stuff, and it's just ridiculously detailed art, which I guess is probably pretty easy to do, considering the complete lack of a background here. Pretty detailed art, and it's like the, the simplicity that this page should have had is, I would say, kind of ruined by the number of caption boxes that are on. This is just way over the... Uh, uh, this is just way overdone, in my opinion. So... Anyway, so getting into Comixology's page four, this is a little bit of a glory shot of uh, Spawn. He's standing in front of uh, vi the, the Violator with a gaping hole in his chest where his heart used to be because the Violator fucking ripped it out in the last issue. His hand is... This, again, I have to put this down to maybe some discontinuity because up to this point, anytime Spawn uses energy-based uh, 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 abilities, it's always been green. Here, this is more more like fire, you know, his 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 hand instead of glowing green, it's like it's engulfed in flames. And I don't know, discontinuity or maybe McFarlane just didn't have things completely figured out yet in terms of how Spawn's powers work. I don't know. But this, when I was a kid, you know, all those years ago, and certainly now, this just stands out to me as just kind of a bizarre artistic choice considering the fact that in the issues to come, as far as I can remember, Spawn's energy-based uh, powers are always going to be green. So to see it kind of like fiery orange and yellow here is just weird. But having said all of that, again, this is a visual medium. 
So what's the art looking like on this page? And I got to say, pretty fucking awesome. It's got, first off, fairly minimal text. There are two dialogue balloons. It's basically Spawn saying, let's try that again. But this time, try and do some real damage. And that's it. You know, it's two... It, my memory of it is this is a two-page spread in the the uh, paper issue. And so it, it still looks good here in electronic format, but clearly this is one of those things that was meant to be seen in just sort of an overall bigger format. You know, there's supposed to be a big moment in, in, in this issue. And I remember it being a big moment in this issue. So, uh, but my point is, you know, this art is just so fucking cool. I, this is just such a cool moment. I love this page. This is just so good. So moving on from there, uh, basically the fight's on. Uh, it's actually, before we even get into that, again, discontinuity. This is Comixology's page seven. Spawn reinserts his heart into his own chest, and he uses this sort of energy blast in order to do so, and this time it's green. So what the fuck was going on on that other page? This was page four. What, you know, what was happening there? Was that discontinuity or, or what? I don't know. And if it was discontinuity, why hasn't it been corrected through all the numerous reprints and stuff? And the answer to that, I got no idea. So anyway, so from there... There's a fair amount of pre-trash, or rather pre-talk, tr uh, pre-fight trash talk. Forgive me, guys. It's Friday as I as I record this, and I'm a little punchy because this has been one hell of a week. Anyway, so there's a little bit of pre-fight trash talk, and then after that, man, the fight's on. You've got uh, Spawn. He's blasting off these energy blasts that the Violator basically blows a hole in them. Uh, the Violator, he's throwing Spawn around, so Spawn lops off the Violator's arm. The Violator returns the favor and lops off Spawn's arm. And then their fight gets interrupted by Malbolgia. He appears on the scene and basically, I guess he decides it's time to stop fucking around and lay down the law a little bit for, at this point, both of his minions. He says, I gave the both of you far too much credit. It's not necessarily it's not necessary to mutilate each other when neither of you can die. Like a pair of jealous siblings, you don't realize the two of you are part of the same family. And like it or not, I'm your daddy. And like a good parent, I can see I need to share some of my insights so you two boys know exactly what's going on. Destiny and damnation. You control neither. So even though you struggle to make sense of what's happening, it doesn't matter because I run both of your lives. And so I guess that's sort of the intro, I suppose. But getting into page 15, we start seeing Malbolgia now sort of explicitly, I don't know, maybe even didactically setting out his agenda here a little bit. This is on Comixology's page 15. He says, I don't have the power to turn people away from God. They have to do that willingly, but once they do, I need to seize that moment and make them mine. Once I have them, my powers can and will control them forever. And I want to put this on pause and say, you know, I touched up not to get too darkness to light here, or for that matter, not to get too picky about this, but I'm, I touched upon this when I was going through Spawn number three in the last episode, that what we're seeing in Spawn, this is, you cannot ignore this, the similarities that all of this has to Christian theology and 
uh, soteriology, Christology, etc. All of the uh, all of the ologies, right? You cannot ignore the similarities that Spawn has to those things, but at the same time, this is not Christian cosmology the way a lot of especially Christians, might be thinking of. This is this is a fictional cosmology, and whatever s similarities it may seem to have to, one might say, conventional mainstream Christianity, guys, that stuff is completely superficial. The simple fact of the matter is that Todd McFarlane, devout, uh, an avowed atheist, I should say, at least an atheist at the time that he's created the that, that he first created these issues. Like these days, I don't know. Maybe maybe he's still an atheist, maybe he's not. I don't know. But at least at the time that he was making these issues, he was an a uh, an atheist. And not like that outspoken kind of obnoxious like Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins type of atheist. He's just, yeah, hey guys, I'm an atheist. Hey, whatever. What's for lunch, you know? He he was never one of those like obnoxious atheists. And so, but whatever, that's really neither here nor there. The point is, this is a a fictional cosmology that he's created for the purposes of telling a story. That's it. Now, having said all of that, there are times when this cosmology of fiction that he's created sometimes has overlap with traditional Christianity. And I don't know if that's by coincidence or by design or what, but especially with some of the Catholic writers that I've read over the years, what Malbolgia is saying here has some, there is some credence to this. There's some credibility here. You know, that basically <clears throat> in Christian thought, the, the devil doesn't necessarily have the power to single-handedly turn somebody who is otherwise a faithful Christian a, away from their faith in God, the devil doesn't really have the ability to do that. Now, if somebody who is of sincere faith at some point or another does turn away from God, then it stands to reason that the devil could and perhaps would act upon that and try to make that condition as permanent as possible. Nevertheless, he cannot, he does not have the ability. The devil is not, a, 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 in Christian thought, he is not a sort of a counterpart to God. He's basically a renegade servant. He's not God. He doesn't have God's uh, uh, power. He doesn't have God's omniscience. He doesn't have God's omnipresence. In the Christian understanding of the devil, He's basically a renegade angel who has all of the abilities and strengths and intelligence and whatever else of an angel, which is considerable, by the way. But he's, and he is certainly opposed to God, but he is in no means equal to God. And so I guess what I'm driving at here is that when, when Malbolgia says, I don't have the ability to turn somebody against God all by myself, they have to make that choice on their own. But once they do, then I can swoop in there and and make my move. This actually has a fair amount of parallels with again with traditional Christianity, right? This is this is something that at least in theory is possible. Now just because a faithful Christian might abandon his faith at some point or another, that doesn't necessarily instantly make him the devil's fodder or anything like that. It simply means that the devil now has a little bit more of an opportunity, perhaps. So put it that way. 
Now, where we start getting into a little bit more of the fictional elements of this cosmology, Malbolgia goes on to say, um, Once I have them, my powers can and will control them forever, which is where you come in, my dear Spawn. My army of evil is not quite complete. I need billions more for the forces of good are naturally quite strong. To ensure my eventual victory, though, I need agents to do my bidding. Your past human life made you the perfect candidate. Young, brash, destructive, ruthless, arrogant, and a hired killer. There's not too many of you around. As one of my agents, you needed powers to set you apart. That was simple. But I'd be a fool to make it limitless. You're wise enough to have sensed the draining of the power. If not, let me explain. The more you use your energy, the faster you come to a second death. The slower you, you use it, the less chance you have of stopping evil around you. Either way, I eventually end up owning your soul. The only chance you have is, how fast are you willing to give it? <laughs> and then, the, you know, that's, that's pretty much it. And so this is, this is a pretty big divergence from Christian thought. Now, I don't want to get too bogged down in this because, honestly, this is not a religious podcast, but this is one of those things that I think people tend to be confused by. They, the reason I'm being such a pain in the ass about this is because there are so many similarities, superficial at times, perhaps, but still, there are a lot of similarities that people who just are not especially knowledgeable about Christianity, they read this and they think, geez, is this really what the Christians believe? And there are instances where we say, well, we believe in something kind of like that, but it's a little bit different. There are other instances where we believe, eh, no, ain't even like that. So this is one of those things that we need to remind ourselves that this is fictional. In Christian thought, you die. And generally speaking, you go to, you, you go to heaven or you go to hell. It's as a Catholic, I mean, yes, there are some nuances to that, but I don't want to dwell on that. It's enough to say that when you die, you go to heaven or you go to hell. Now, if you go to heaven, hey, that's great, all right? Uh, you're, you're in heaven and you're at peace. You know, you've experienced the fullness of God and, and all of that, and that's great. You go to hell and no one really knows, obviously no one really knows for certain what that's like. Different people have had different uh, conceptions of it. Um, I think maybe one of the most uh, famous examples um, is uh, Dante, right? He he wrote the book Inferno, and it's kind of up for grabs how literally he believed in that. Like, does he really believe that's what hell is? Or did he simply create sort of a, liter a literary vision of hell to describe different types of punishments? But this isn't necessarily literal. This is basically, it, it, it's it's more meant to be about the general idea of what hell is, as opposed to this is what Dante literally believed, and so this is what you should believe too. I mean, different people have different ideas about that. So there's one, all right? A, another, and, I, and of course I'm forgetting which book it was, but basically C.S. Lewis outlined what he thought hell was like, and in C.S. Lewis's in understanding of hell... It's basically a complete, absolute, perfect separation from God, all right? That's basically what it is. And so you're in heaven, but I don't know how else to put it. It's almost like you live on the outskirts of heaven, 
all right? You are so shamed by your absolute lack of forgiveness, your lack of remorse, your lack of everything, that you that you are not in God's presence and you cannot bear to be in God's presence. And so you are, you're constantly, it's within eyesight, it's as close to, you're as close to it as you possibly can be without some kind of crippling agony, or for that matter, just the, the pure shame of being in his presence. You know, you cannot retreat. You can never get any further away than you, than you already are from uh, a shame that runs so deep as to be almost a physical pain. And yet you cannot get any closer either. You are beyond all hope. You are beyond all forgiveness you in i guess in a certain sense you're in heaven in quote marks but you're not experiencing the fullness of god you're experiencing god from afar it's it's a it's a type of punishment where the shame that you bear is going to be with you for all of eternity anytime god moves about you are forced to move an equal amount of distance away from his presence simply because you cannot be in the presence of his presence of his presence right? To even be within a few thousand light years, one might say, is just physically fucking unbearable for you. And so you have no choice but to retreat. You have nowhere to go. You can't move further away, but it's like at the same time, you cannot move closer either. You're in heaven, but heaven is its own special sort of hell for you by virtue of the fact that you have not been redeemed, you haven't been forgiven, and so you see these things, but from afar, and you you can't seeing the 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 joy and the the I guess the paradise that heaven represents. You have a your comprehension of that is one of punishment because of the fact that you are not redeemed, you are not forgiven, right? And I don't know if I'm doing this concept justice exactly, but what I'm trying to say is there are a wide variety of opinions on on what heaven is like and what hell is like in Christian thought. And my point in saying all of this is to say that different people have different ideas, and so there's not necessarily complete agreement from one Christian to the next on what you should expect in the afterlife, except to say that, in general, except to say that Heaven is a real place and hell is a real place, so just beware. So this is what we're seeing here is somebody who doesn't, I am, or presumably, I mean, I don't want to dictate McFarland's beliefs to him, but presumably, you know, as an atheist, presumably this person does not believe in heaven, nor does he believe in hell. And so this is, I guess, his idea of a fictional version of heaven and hell. And in this fictional version of heaven and hell, if you go to hell, you basically become a servant of the devil. Now, I want to be careful how I say this, because this is one of those things that we don't really know and can't really know for sure. But I've heard Catholic exorcists tell stories of performing exorcisms. And in the great majority of cases, these exorcisms are the darkness, however you want to quantify that. This is the darkness that has taken possession of somebody, and so the darkness is expelled. In certain cases, however, exorcists have said this is kind of rare, but it has been known to happen that the damned have been forced to possess certain people at certain times, at least in certain circumstances. Now, what are the contours of that? I have no idea. 
and these these Catholic exorcists, they don't claim to know either. They just say that during some of these rites, they have had conversations with people where they claim to be the souls of the damned. Now, we're already pretty far deep into some kind of weird Christian theology or demonology, really. So since we're here, let me just say, as the as these exorcists would probably be happy to remind you, demons are liars, and so like literally that's their first language, you know. So you you're kind of within your rights to just not believe anything that they tell you. So if they have, so if these exorcists are having conversations with somebody who's possessed, it doesn't necessarily make sense to take whoever is doing this possessing. It doesn't necessarily make sense to take them up at, to take them at their word. If they claim to be not a demonic spirit, but the soul of the damned who have been forced to possess this human body, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily make sense to do that. So I guess what I'm trying to say, the principle I'm trying to set up is that there are some schools of Christian thought which say that if you go to hell, you might be compelled into the service of the devil. We don't really know for sure if that's possible. We do know that such a thing has been claimed, but that's some kind of out there stuff to begin with anyway. Specifically, what Mount Bolgia is talking about is forming his own army, wherein the souls of the damned ultimately become soldiers in Satan's army. It, to the best of my knowledge, which is by no means absolute, by no means perfect, but to the best of my knowledge, this is not something that is orthodox anywhere in, in Christian thought. There is basically nobody out there who believes this or anything like this. Now, does that mean that? Just because very few or perhaps no Christians believe in it, that does that mean that it's impossible? No. But the reason I'm mentioning this is to say that what we're dealing with here is, again, a fictional cosmology, right? This is not Christianity. So whatever superficial similarities may exist between the, the cosmology presented in Spawn as a title and Christianity as it has been practiced and believed in for thousand or yeah two thousand years at this point. Just bear in mind these are not necessarily the same thing, no matter how similar at times they may appear. So what I'm trying to say is, if you read this stuff, it's great as entertainment, but that doesn't necessarily make it orthodox in the universe of Christian thought. So just something to be aware of there. And I got to tell you, I've probably spent more time talking about religion in this single episode than I have any other episode that I've ever done. So I'm just going to move right along as though nothing ever happened. Getting into page 16, as it, as it is with comicsology, the end begins ending with Malbolgia reattaching Spawn's arm. And here again, this is just some really fucking cool art. I just dig this so much. It's basically Spawn coming face to face with, I don't know if it's accurate necessarily to say his maker, but from a certain point of view, his maker. And it's, I just love this art. This is just so good. So, so, so good. And after that, Malbolgia, uh takes takes his leave of the scene of the crime, as it were. This is on page 18, Comixology's page 18. And he basically, the violator's been mouthing off to Malbolgia, so Malbolgia's basically had enough of him and his bullshit. So he reverts him back to his pseudo-human form. He cannot change back into 
the violator, he's now the clown. And he can't make the switch anymore. And this is basically punishment of a sort. And some story stuff comes out of that. We don't really need to get into that here because, who knows, I may get into it in the future. But anyway, so that's basically the end of things. Uh, this is basically setting up the status quo as it's going to be for the next few years of Spawn. And all in all, I just, I dig these issues. I, I dig this art. I dig this concept. I'm not saying that every single issue of Spawn that exists out there is amazing and high art and all this stuff. But at least to start with, this is a really good comic book. And I don't know as it necessarily gets the appreciation it deserves because of the fact that it's early 90s image. And that's kind of this pejorative thing. Or it was a more of a pejorative thing back in the 2000s. But I get the idea that the tide is kind of turning on that. You know, for a lot of the 20 or the latter half of the 2010s, and certainly these days, it seems like people are reappraising early image, and they're a little bit more likely to give it a bit more of a fair shot. So, I don't know. But um, all in all, this is just, this is a ton of fun. I enjoy these issues. I enjoy this title up to a certain point, And this is just, this is just good times. Good comics. I enjoy it. And again... Fictional cosmology, guys. Don't forget that. So, anyway, so I think that's pretty much it for Spawn number four. Now, getting into feed... Actually, you know what? Before I get into feedback, I want to get a sip off of my orange vanilla Coke here because I've been running my mouth now for, what's it been, like over half an hour now? So, I think it's time to get a drink. Just a sec. Good stuff. All right. You know what? I, uh, since I'm here, I want to go ahead and get a couple, couple of drags off of uh, my vaporizer. Uh, today's flavor, this is from Gemini Vapors. This is called Formula. LP6. It only just arrived, and I only filled up my tank just before starting to record. So, this is... I don't know. I mean, I I don't know if I'm getting the fullness of this flavor just yet, because like I say, I only filled up uh, my tank for the first time with this liquid uh, just before I started recording. And so the old liquid is still kind of in there, you know, a little bit. So I don't really know. What I can say is I got this totally for free because I've been a customer now of Gemini Vapors for so long that they actually just start sending me free shit, apparently. So anyway, so like I say, this is called Formula LP6. And you know what? Perhaps appropriately, considering today's subject matter, uh, it looks like this has this label apart from being, you know, just very high quality printing, it looks like this label has, I don't know, like some kind of Cthulhu looking thing on here. It's basically a face with tentacles coming out of it. So I don't know what the fuck. So I don't have a whole lot to say about the flavor of it yet, just because like I say, I'm 
only trying it now, really, for the first time. But, uh, the, uh, little label, <coughs> excuse me, the uh, little label here says, Flavored Pastime Circle Treat. Formula LP6. I don't know what the fuck that's even supposed to mean. Flavored Pastime Circle Treat. I don't know. Anyway, what I do know is this, uh, what, what I can taste of this, of, uh, of, of this liquid, it's, uh, it's not half bad, but I don't know. Maybe I'll give you guys a, uh, an update on this at some point in the future. So anyway, but as far as feedback is concerned, let's see, feedback, feedback, feedback. What do we got? Ah, yes. Okay. So this, this bit of feedback comes from my old friend, Fanboy MS Prime, dated September the 1st, 2015. So we're starting to get kind of, sort of caught up in a way. Maybe. Uh, the subject line of this, uh, of this email, it says, Legends Commentary. So that should just about tell you how long it really has been. Because this email, ladies and gentlemen, this email is a reaction to, the, to that episode that I did many, many moons ago about the DC crossover. If, well, not so much the crossover event itself. But uh, the episode that I did about the Legends miniseries, I don't know, maybe someday I'll tackle some of those crossovers. I haven't really, haven't really made up my mind on that, to tell you the truth. But in any case, that pretty much is, is what this is a reaction to. So all of this is kind of a long way of saying, yeah, it's been a long time. So anyway, uh, without further ado, Fanboy Miss Prime writes, Hey, Magnus, got to tell you one thing. I love Legends, though I kind of mistook that Robin, uh, or rather, I kind of mistook the Robin in uh, in this being Dick Grayson, which, given this Jason Todd version is Dick Grayson 2.0, it's an understandable mistake. And Prime, I'm going to have to agree with you on all of this. See, <clears throat> Prime, correct me if you think I'm wrong, but one of the things that I've noticed lately is that Pre-crisis Jason Todd is not super well known. I mean, it's. I mean, don't get me wrong. It, it, most people understand that. Yes, there was a character. Yes, his name was Jason Todd, and yes, he did pre-exist the cri uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths. All right. Most people seem clear on that. What they don't seem kind of as clear on is the fact that the Jason Todd that they're most likely thinking of really is a product of Batman comics circa 1987, if I'm not mistaken. And the version of Jason Todd, which existed prior to that, you're, you're pretty much right. I mean, he's, you can draw a lot of straight lines between Dick Grayson and pre-crisis Jason Todd. Now, not quite so many as people seem to think. I don't know if I'm ever going to do a, a a hearty defense of pre-crisis Jason Todd. I don't know if I'm ever going to do that. But I can say that this, the similarities, while they may be overstated, they nevertheless do exist. And it seems to be a source of revelation for some people. Like, this is just an awe-inspiring discovery to learn that 
Jason Todd, the the kind of uh, smart ass, rebellious, talk uh, talking back sort of brat. That's of a slightly more recent vintage than the inception of the character itself, which, again, if memory serves, that's like 1982, 83, something like that. So there were a couple of years of Jason Todd stories coming out where the character was basically, in a way, he was kind of Dick Grayson by another name, which was by design. So, anyhow... Anyway, so like I say, Prime, if you think I'm wrong about that, uh, please, I, I, I do invite your correction on that. But uh, it's just it's, it's my sense that a lot of fans these days, they've sort of forgotten about pre-crisis Jason Todd. And so surprised they certainly are when they read Legends. And this characterization of Jason Todd has absolutely positively nothing in common with the Jason Todd era of Robin that they are most likely thinking of, even though Legends actually came out pretty close to that, basically Jason Todd version 2.0, I guess we could call him, post-crisis Jason, whatever you want to call him. So, yeah. Anyways, Prime goes on to say, still... I really enjoyed the story and consider it an underrated gem. And Prime, I'm putting your email right back on pause to say, you know what? I kind of agree with you. Like, as much as people have kind of forgotten about just the simple existence, the simple fact of pre-crisis Jason Todd, I'll extend that by saying that I don't know that Legends is a super well-remembered crossover. Everybody remembers Millennium. Everybody... Uh, remembers invasion every geez what was that other uh, everybody remembers cosmic odyssey so on and so on but legends it just doesn't it just doesn't seem to be as well remembered as some of those other events i cannot explain that i i i'm not i'm not here to tell you that i've got the magic answer on that or anything but The first time I can really remember that becoming apparent to me, it was actually during uh, the 10th season of of Smallville. And Prime, I'm going off memory here, but my sense of your fandom is that you're aware of Smallville. You, You know that there is such a thing as Smallville, but you tend not to get as much into Smallville as compared to other things anyway. And so I, you know, so I I guess what I'm trying to say is, again, not trying to tangent too much or for that matter, talk your ear off. But suffice it to say, the 10th season of Smallville, which is to say its final season, is a kind of loosey-goosey adaptation of Legends. Not perfect. It's not exact. But you can't, again, you cannot deny the similarities. And so it was for that reason that I kind of sort of was able to predict. I don't want to get in like spoiler territory too much in terms of what I'm going to be talking about with Magnus talks about Smallville when I finally get to the 10th season. I don't want to detract too much from that. But suffice it it to say, once I recognized the illusions that uh, season 10 was making to Legends, I was able to 
pretty well guess how season 10 was going to conclude. Now, it didn't wrap up exactly the way that I predicted, but it was pretty close. I, I'll, I'll say that. It, I, I, was, I, I was pretty close. And so, but anyway, to kind of tie it all back to the main point, what I realized when I was watching Smallville season 10, you know, as these episodes were coming on TV, again, a lot of people especially one might say during the during the 10th season of the show smallville was basically public enemy number 1 to douchebag websites like supermanhomepage.com and so all anybody was doing was uh lambasting smallville at times for flaws that it didn't even have and that's that was the absolute state of fandom as i remember it from 20 during the 2010 2011 television season i mean smallville could do no right and one of the criticisms which is quite completely baseless but nevertheless one of the criticisms that i remember seeing on a pretty regular basis was people saying that smallville had basically ripped off uh, uh watchmen you know this whole idea of the keen act from watchmen basically smallville had peeled that off and used it for their own purposes and it's like, number one, the Keen Act or something similar to it, that's not exactly a hot new idea in comics. I mean, the idea of legislating superheroes out of existence, or for that matter, the government persecuting superheroes or registering them or, or just whatever, these are not exactly original ideas. I honestly don't know. The first uh, comic book or superhero property or what to use that but I do know that Watchmen ain't it, for sure, right? I mean, if nothing else, the Mutant Registration Act definitely predates Watchmen, as far as I know. <clears throat> so that's number one. Number two, though, again, the, the similarities between uh, Legends and Smallville's 10th season they became kind of obvious to me kind of early on, and so I was expecting something akin to the Vigilante Registration Act in Smallville Season 10. And I was amazed to discover that nobody saw this coming. And when it finally happened, they cried foul because, hey, this is a Watchmen ripoff. And what I realized slowly but surely is these people don't know what the fuck they're talking about. I mean, first off, a lot of these loudmouths that you see on Facebook and uh, let me think what like, I don't know so much about Twitter, but Facebook and a lot of these uh, message boards and, and places like that. They watch the movies, they watch the TV shows and all that stuff, but reading the comics? Not really. And so, as a result, when something like Smallville Season 10 and the Vigilante Registration Act happens, they see connective tissue where, in fact, none exists. The connective tissue that does exist they know nothing about because that hasn't been adapted into live action prior to this moment. And so, but even among people who I, who are what I would consider to be a little bit more seasoned fans, like people who, in my opinion, at least really should have known better. Didn't, you know, they didn't see that there's a lot of overlap. Again, it's not exactly perfect, but there is still a significant amount of overlap between Smallville Season 10 and Legends, and they just were not seeing it. And these are people that I know for a fact 
Prime have read Legends, probably have it in their collection somewhere, but it's like they've just completely blanked on it. And that seemed to be very much the case as I looked around fandom starting in 2010, just because of the fact that, you know, Smallville was going on at the time. And so I started looking around and it's like, people seem to have really forgotten about this. And I, I could be wrong, but I swear to think Legends was the first major crossover that DC attempted after Crisis on Infinite Earths. And so you'd think it would stand out in a lot of people's minds just for that reason. Not to mention the fact that it was uh, the main series was drawn by John Byrne. And it was I mean, it was just so good. It was just so fucking good. And it's like people just don't seem to remember that. And I don't get that. But there you go. So anyway, like I say, Prime, if you think I'm wrong on any of that, I... I'm inviting you. Please do correct me. But that's that's just the sense that I've gotten. It like Legends is this is the like the 1980s post-crisis DC crossover that time fucking forgot. It and so that's one of the reasons by the way that I wanted to do a uh why I wanted to do an episode about it. So anyway, getting back into Prime's email though. He says, "Great story." And I know I said it before, that the reason the characters in this league or seeming league at the end didn't show up is because literally the other the other editors wouldn't let them show up. Seriously. For the JLI era, it was intended to be what Morrison did with JLA of getting the, the big guns back together. The Justice League editor, also was editor on Green Lantern and the Batman editor, felt sorry for him. Everyone else said no. So, Yeah. And Prime, I'm going to put this on pause and say, actually, you know what, man, I did not know that. You know, I really, I'm, I, I guess I walked into this thing kind of, because I don't remember exactly what I said in that episode, but it, it, it sounds plausible that I would have expressed some kind of confusion as to why this exact lineup is being chosen as the Justice League. And so your little comment here actually sort of filled in the gap. So I decided to check it out. And sure enough, uh, what I discovered is that the JLI uh, lineup of Batman, Black Canary, Blue Beetle, Dr. Fate, Dr. Light, Guy Gardner, and Martian Manhunter, basically those characters were used because those are, those were the characters that could be used. As you say, like, I think it, like, I, and I actually got this bit off the Wikipedia page. Uh, for Batman's entry, it says, Denny O'Neill, taking pity on the new creative team, allowed Batman to be used in the series. And so, and, and it even links to a source. I, you know, I didn't uh, bother checking into that. There is a source, so whatever, that's good enough for me. So, so there's that. And then there's the Guy Gardner element where the Wikipedia page says, editor Andy Helfer suggested using Guy Gardner over the more well-known Hal Jordan, but there's no source for that, so who the hell knows? Now, being as, as you say, Andy Helfer was also, he was not just editor of JLI, he was also the editor of GL, it stands to reason, at least to me, that he would have final say over which at least Green Lantern characters get used in, in JLI, and it's not hard to see his logic. I mean, you bring a, a character like Guy Gardner onto the team, and there's going to be plenty of room for conflict and drama and all this other stuff, characters just sort of bickering with one another. And as a writer, that's kind of what you're looking for. 
And so let's face it, Guy Gardner, especially I would say in the late 80s, he was written very much as kind of a, he's kind of an asshole, to be honest with you. I mean, he was, he's just very bro, you know? And so it makes sense to include him on the team just because of the dynamic that he introduces into the book. So honestly, that's one of those things that I thought seemed so obvious that it didn't, it scarcely needed justification, at least in my mind. So anyways, did I even read the complete team? Let's see. I, it's a Batman, Black Canary, Blue Beetle, Captain Marvel, Dr. Fate, Dr. Light, uh, Guy Gardner, and Martian Manhunter. <clears throat> so, just in case it wasn't clear before, well, hopefully now it is. So, anyway, getting back into Prime's email, and, and I guess what I'm saying here, guys, is uh, uh, Prime, thanks. Actually, I did not know that, so thank you for pointing that out. Anyway, Prime goes on to say, and if you wonder where I got that information about the JLI, it was from the foreword from one of the trades of the first six or so issues of what became JLI, and from the editor in charge of the book at the time, which I assume Prime is Andy Helfer, but what do I know? Anyway, so Prime goes on to say, love the show, and we'll see if, if it's about next year I hear the email on the show. Probably later, as your email address went to shit. Wreck and rule. Signed, Prime. And Prime, look, uh, I think by this point you've probably heard me apologize a few dozen times, so hopefully that goes without saying. Obviously it was a lot longer than one year though, bud, so, uh, but thank you for sticking with me, thank you for hanging in there, and um, I'm, like I say Prime, I'm really making good on this, I'm really trying to get caught up on, on all the email and make sure I read everything that's come in, and for the most part I'd say that I am. So anyway, but Prime just bear with me. Sooner or later, everything's going to get read on mic, okay? This I do affirm. So, anyway, and I think that pretty much closes the book on Spawn number four, which by itself, that also kind of closes the book on these seven men are disrupting the comic book industry. Now, <clears throat> in terms of image stuff, guys, I'm just going to be completely honest with you. I don't know that I'm ever going to revisit the Savage Dragon, I tend to be skeptical, all right? I'm tempted to say I'm very unlikely to ever revisit the Savage Dragon. I just, I mean, I guess never say never, so I'm not going to say never, but I honestly cannot imagine circumstances where I ever discuss Savage Dragon number five and just work forward from there. Again, not promising anything, okay? Maybe I will discuss it. I don't know. If I were a betting man, I would tend to say probably not. So there's that. Now, as to Wildcats and Spawn, that's a little bit different issue. Spawn, I honestly can't see... Well, obviously Spawn is an ongoing thing right now. So obviously I can't talk about uh, the totality of it. Honestly, I would be surprised if I even get up as high as Spawn number 50. Um, I do want to revisit Spawn. I don't know how far with it I'm ever actually going to go. But I do think this is a, a... It's a pretty good title. It's pretty underrated. And it definitely deserves more love than it actually gets. So I'm not saying it's high art. But it's pretty good. And so at some point or another, I, I, I do want to revisit Spawn. You know, basically pick up with Spawn number five. And let's just see where things go. Don't know when I'm going to do that. 
but I would like to at some point. I, and I, I would tend to say, you know what, I'm probably going to do it. Again, I'm not guaranteeing anything, but if I were a betting man, blah, 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 probably I would, uh, I would say that, the, that, that I'm going to uh, revisit Spawn sooner or later. As to Wildcats, that is a different thing. I'm definitely going to revisit that. Now, again, don't know when that's going to be. I've got some ideas on how I could go about doing it. Uh, a few different... A few different options, shall we say. And so, whether it's Wildcats number five, and then I guess number six and seven, and, you know, make, and just doing a handful of those all by themselves, or maybe doing Wildcats sort of as like part of a series with some other image comics. I mean, I don't know, but I'm, I'm very close to certain that I'm going to revisit Wildcats at some point or another. So, um, and honestly, like, I don't, I don't remember how, how many issues there were of the first, like, series of Wildcats, like Wildcats Volume 1. Basically, 1992 to 1998, how many issues there were. I tend to think there were quite a few, but I honestly, uh, I don't know. But I, I, I dig Wildcats. I like that title. I like that concept. I like Wildstorm, like pre-DC Wildstorm. I just dig it. So at some point or another, I'm going to say that you should expect me to come back to Wildcats. So Wildcats, definitely. Spawn, most probably. Savage Dragon, I don't know, but don't hold your breath. So that's just something to be aware of. Now, as to next week, I'm going to be talking about uh, an issue of Wizard Magazine. So I think I'm going to just keep it under my hat for the time being, specifically which, which issue of Wizard. But yes, I am going to be talking about Wizard Magazine, you know, just kind of continuing with this whole retro 90s thing. So that's going to be for next week, but that is for next week, and I think that's pretty much it for me for this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. So I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me 
and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise! Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And, just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void were prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsacor of Milan, Italy. a podcast called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. I release new episodes every Tuesday, and sometimes those episodes are all about Smallville. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville. In my opinion, Smallville is the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in history. Magnus Talks About Smallville is dedicated to themes, story arcs, and character motivations of Smallville. I do a ton of in-depth analysis of each episode of the show, and people seem to love listening to me talk about Smallville. And I want you along for the ride. Check out Magnus Talks About Smallville, a feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, and see for yourself why Smallville is awesome. Magnus Talks About Smallville. 
a feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, only at twotruefreaks.com.